Welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Last week we began this series in John by looking at the question of who is Jesus, or who is this word as John 1 uh, describes him. We followed a little bit of what C.S. Lewis said, that there are really only three options. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. He either lied, knowing he wasn't God and called himself God, or he was a lunatic who wrongly believed that he was God when he wasn't, or he was the Lord. He was God. You see, the Gospel of John contains the most explicit claims to the divinity of Christ that we see in all of the Gospels. And so when we say things or sing things like we just did, that Christ is Lord, we are not just saying that Christ is in charge, though we are saying that, but rather what we're doing is we're applying the personal name of God to Christ. In the Old Testament, when they would have the name of God, and would be transcri- transcribed the name I Am, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, they would read it as Lord. So when Paul or John here, and we're saying the word Lord or Lord Jesus Christ, we are saying Yahweh Jesus Christ. Jehovah Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. And this has been the testimony of the Christian church from the very beginning. The first confession of faith was simple. Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is God. And the gospel of John lays that out for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him He created all things, and in Him He has the power of life and light. And despite the identity of that Word as the Creator God, it says, it goes on, that He was rejected by His own, that the darkness opposed Him, but the darkness could not overcome Him. In today's passage, we're going to continue in that prologue or introduction to the Gospel of John of who Jesus is, and we will see what John calls a fullness, a fullness of the Word, a fullness of Christ. What does it mean for something to be full or fullness? It means that it's not lacking anything, that it's filled to the brim, that everything that you can fit in there has been fit in there. And so when we are talking about the fullness of Christ, we are saying we are not lacking any more revelation of who God is. We're not waiting for another word from God to find out what he's going to do. We have it in Christ. He is the fullness of God's own self-revelation. Because understanding the full picture of just about anything is important. You and I, we we don't often have the full picture of just about anything, but we like to rush to judgment anyway. We live in a time of the 24-hour news cycle. We live in a time of the social media hot takes, which are more often than not lame takes. Anyone anywhere can feel justified at their keyboard or their phone. Just type it in and like, ha-ha, I've just owned someone. And it doesn't age very well six months later. But we tend to forget that. 
Sometimes I, I wonder, myself included, if we ever pause to think how stupid we sound online. God has said that every word we speak will be judged. I think that includes what we say online. So perhaps we should measure our hot takes just a little bit before we issue an edict. Because there's a big difference between understanding a part of something and understanding the fullness of something, the whole picture. Like trying to assemble a puzzle without having the box picture on there, we are often very quick to try to jam those pieces in, no matter how we deform them, as long as it fits with our preconceived notions. Contrary to this, what John wants us to see here is the revelation of the Word is a full picture. It is enough. God has given us enough in Christ. And so we are called to come and see the fullness of Christ. And this passage today zooms in on the incarnation, on the Word taking on a human flesh, a human nature. The mystery at the heart of the Christian faith is that God became a man. So much so as we get towards the end of this gospel, Pilate will bring Jesus out before the crowd and he will say, Behold the man. And he's right to an extent. There is the man, Jesus Christ, standing there. So this passage begins with this shocking statement. The Word, who is God, who was with God, who created all things, who is the light, who is the life, the Word became flesh. We'll spend more time tonight, if you're coming back for the Christmas Eve service at Riverview, we're going to spend more time looking at that phrase in specific, that the Word became flesh and what it means for us today. But for now, just know that this is where we get the word incarnation from. Incarnation literally means enfleshment. It means to be in the flesh. Incarne, in the flesh. That God the Son took on a human nature. So I want to zoom in on two words here in 14. That is the word became and the word flesh. First, consider the word um, became. He became flesh. How does someone become something? And what we're getting at here is that the word existed before he became flesh. Well, there are some schools of thought, I don't really think there are many Christians anymore who believe this, but there were some schools of thought that all human souls pre-existed their birth, and then somehow they were put into bodies at some point. That is almost certainly wrong and finds no support in Scripture whatsoever. Let me rephrase this for you. You and I, we do not become flesh, like Christ did. You and I are flesh. Intrinsic to who you are as a human is you are in the body. You are in the flesh. You are flesh and soul. This is true. But you did not exist before your conception. What we read here that the Word became flesh. He became it because He existed before that. He was the pre-existent eternal Son. And He added to Himself a full human nature. We should note here that when we talk about Him becoming flesh or adding a human nature. It is not that the human and the divine nature mix with one another because then you have neither a human nor a divine nature, but rather you have one person who has a human nature and a divine nature. So just like one day I became a father and before that I was not, another day I became a pastor and before that I was not a pastor, 
the Word became flesh. He existed for all eternity. And then at a definite point in time, according to the foreknowledge and plan of God, the Word took on flesh. The second word there is the word flesh. John could have used the Greek word here for body, but he didn't choose that word, and he didn't choose that word body for a very specific reason. Now first we need to pause here because in the Bible that word flesh is used in multiple different ways. Paul generally, though not always, uses the word flesh only to refer to our sinful natures. He will say you are fleshly, and by saying that he means you are sinful. That is not how John is using the word flesh here. He uses the word flesh instead of body to convey a fuller picture than just a human body. This is not just God using a human body as a puppet, but the word became flesh. He became a human, a full human nature with all of the human frailty that you and I have minus the sin. Jesus took that upon himself. He literally became one of us. He did not merely appear to be a human. It was no trick. But he became flesh without losing any of his divinity. And so the church has confessed for 2,000 years that Jesus Christ is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. There's much more we could say about this. But we must at least say this. The incarnation affirms the inherent goodness of creation the inherent goodness or worth of humanity. Now you might be getting a little nervous. God created the human world, or created the physical world, and he declared it very good. Right now, it is sin-stained and fallen. And so we say about humans, on the one hand, they are good, they are worthwhile because they are made in the image of God, and on the other hand, they are also sinners. And fallen in need of redemption. But when I say that being a human is a a good thing, is full of goodness, I am saying that sin is not inherent to being a human. And moreover, a human body or a human flesh is not the problem. The problem is sin. See, one of the major stumbling blocks for the Greeks to the gospel message was this part of it, that God became flesh. Many Greeks believed that the flesh or the physical nature was the problem. And that if you wanted to be saved, your spirit had to be liberated from your body. And the incarnation comes in with God taking on a human nature, saying, no, the body's not the problem. The sin's the problem. In other words, you are not waiting to be freed from your body to spend all of eternity in some non-physical heaven forever. But rather, what we are waiting for is the resurrection of the dead where body and spirit are joined together, where Christ descends upon earth and remakes it all, and we live in heaven and earth united for all eternity. To put it plainly, that Christ became flesh, the incarnation is essential to our hope. The Word became flesh. But John continues, not only did the Word become flesh, but He dwelt among us. He lived among us. As we go throughout the Gospel of John, you are going to notice that John really, really knows his Old Testament really well. And that you can't understand this Gospel if you don't understand the Old Testament. In fact, you can't understand any of the Gospels if you don't understand your Old Testament. But he is a master of making allusions back to the Old Testament. 
The word used here for dwelt is the same word that would be used for the tabernacle or the tent of meeting of Israel. When, when John writes that the word became flesh, he is literally saying the word tabernacled with us. Or sorry, not word became flesh, the word dwelt with us. That the word tabernacled with us. If you don't remember, in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel left Egypt, they went out into the wilderness. God gave instructions for them to build this tent of meeting in the wilderness. This tabernacle. And this tabernacle would then become the temple under Solomon. But in the tabernacle, God would dwell with his people. His spirit would descend as a cloud of glory in the camp. And now he was living with Israel in a very awesome and present way, but also a very limited way. Only Moses and the high priest could go into that tent, into its most holy place. And so John writes here that that word, who is God, tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. That God's presence was among his people again. No more tent No more temple, now it's Jesus. This sets up two themes that John's going to revisit in his gospel. In John chapter 2, Jesus is going to cleanse the temple, and then he's going to say, you can tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. And the people are like, you can't do that, that's impossible. Look at all these big stones. And Jesus is like, no, I'm the temple. I'm the tabernacle. All that stuff over there, that was about me. Then later on in John 7 and 8, Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the feast of tabernacles to celebrate God living with them in their midst during the wilderness wandering they had the feast of tabernacles and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and on two different occasions basically says I am the fulfillment of this feast so I say this with a lot of confidence Christian you and I are not awaiting a rebuilt Jewish temple Jesus is the temple He's greater than the temple. We have no theological or biblical need for a new temple because Jesus is the temple, the true temple, the true dwelling with humanity. And if you read your New Testament well, you'll actually see that now that applies to his body on earth, which is the church, is the temple in this age. Let's rewind. The temple imagery here, the most holy place, it intentionally points back to the Garden of Eden. There would be a curtain hanging there with pictures of angels with flaming swords standing there saying, no one can enter. I should remind you of the book of Genesis. As Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God placed an angel there saying, no one can come back into my presence. You see, man has always longed to live with his Creator. We have always longed to live with God to be in a relationship with Him. We all have this sense and acknowledgement of God. We even have a term for it. It's called sensus divinitas. That all of us have a sense of the divine. That we are born with an inherent knowledge that there is someone greater than us. It's not just the Bible that teaches it, that teaches us that, though that would be enough. They have done studies on children from all around the world, all different cultures. They're all born with an inherent knowledge that God exists. It's only later that you come to push that knowledge down and deny it. Man is a thoroughly religious being. And yet, with the rise of things like 
Darwinism or naturalism or secularism, it was put forward that science and reason would take over. And as man became more rational, more based in science, that he would become less and less religious. Many of those people who have made those claims are very disappointed today. Man has not become less religious, but in fact more religious in the last several decades. We've seen a new rise of the old paganism. We've seen a new rise of Eastern religions here in the United States. For others who deny traditional religions, politics and science have taken on religious fervor for them. Trust the science. Believe in the science. How about believe in God instead? And far from becoming more rational than ever, we've become a highly educated people who do things like this. We read horoscopes. There are people who do pagan rituals like drink blood. People go on retreats to live in darkness for days to find out if they should keep playing football. Sorry, Packer fans. Had to do it. We have religious experiences everywhere. We have people who deny that math is anything but a form of white supremacy. We have people who can't define biological sex. The more we have gotten rid of God, we've become more and more irrational. Not rational. Why is this so? Because man longs for the transcendent and we long for God because God has hardwired that into us. You were meant to be in a relationship with God. It is no accident that every civilization that has ever existed, you see this haunting echo. There is a God somewhere and he's angry with me. So I better figure out how to make things okay. We want God to be with us. We want him to live among us. Though that becomes terrifying because we know our own sinfulness. And all of that goes back to the garden. Man lived with God. God walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. He spoke directly with him. God made a perfect paradise for Adam and Eve to live in. But man chose to replace God with himself. And so God removed him from his presence. But that's not the end of the story. God also promised that he would restore it one day. God was with Abraham. He was with Isaac. He was with Jacob. He was with Israel in the wilderness. He was with Israel in the land. But then they kept sinning. So God sent prophets and said, stop sinning, stop sinning. And they didn't listen. So what did God do? The same thing he did to Adam and Eve. He exiled them. He kicked them out. And his presence left the temple. No more dwelling with God. But this is the best news you will ever hear, I think. What we see in the Gospel of John is that God takes the step toward us. God sends Emmanuel, God with us, to be with us. God himself descends from heaven, humbles himself, and takes upon himself a human flesh to walk among us. And as I said to you last week, the fact that God took on flesh is both a wonderful story and a terrifying story. Wonderful in that we see the mercy and love of God and terrifying because if this is true, God walked among us and then we killed him. So I want you to hear this. This is the difference uh, between eternal life and eternal death. Listen very, very carefully. The love of God is this. 
that though we have sinned against him in far greater ways than anyone in this room will ever be sinned against, that he came to us, that he sought us out, and he did that knowing he would be rejected, and he did that knowing that he would die in your place. The incarnation of Christ is the message of God's saving love and the length he would go to save his people. So verse 14 continues. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, John is intentionally pointing back to the Old Testament. Moses had seen the glory of God passing by on Mount Sinai, but that was but a glimpse. And he had to hide in the rocks in order for it to happen. But the person in the work of Christ, we read, we see his glory. We see the exact imprint of his nature. Consider Hebrews chapter 1 on this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is that final revelation of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He is the revelation of God's presence and God's glory and his nature. But John's not done with us yet. There's still more fullness of Christ here. Look at verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the God man. What we see here is a fullness of Christ when a new creative act. And what John is getting at here is that something new has happened. Something greater has happened. Now the ESV translates this, that through Jesus we have grace upon grace. It then puts a little footnote there saying, there might be a better way to put this. They're right, there is a better way to put it. The ESV footnote puts it this way, grace in the place of grace. Or more shortly put, grace instead of grace. In Jesus we have received grace instead of grace. And you're like, What does that even mean? How is this grace instead of grace? Well, first, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. That God has given us unmerited, a new unmerited favor in Jesus Christ. And what he is replacing here is the grace found in Moses in the law. You see, sometimes Christians, you know, trying to make sense of something that is hard to make sense of in the Bible how the law and the gospel go together. They try to pit them against one another. Say the law isn't grace and only the gospel is. But right here at the very beginning of John, it says that the law of Moses is a grace. That in the place of the grace that God gave to his people through Moses and the law, he is now given a greater grace in Jesus Christ. Both of them are grace. But one is greater than the other. Christ in his fullness is greater than Moses. Put it another way, the law of Moses was never meant to be the final word, the final revelation. It was always meant to point forward to Jesus. He is the final word. 
He is the full word. And so the coming of the Son brings with it new, greater realities, a new, greater covenant. With Moses, we receive the grace of the law, but in Christ, we receive the fullness of grace. No more cloud of glory descending upon the tent, but instead God the Son descending upon the world. No more tabernacle or temple, but Jesus who is the temple. The glory of the incarnated word. The contrast is found more clearly in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Through Moses came the law, through Jesus comes grace and truth. And I really want to hammer this point home. The Bible speaks very highly of the law of Moses. Jesus spoke very highly of the law of Moses. It is not evil. It is not to be ashamed of. It is not worthless. It is meant to point to Jesus. And there we must see it is also not the end goal. It was never meant to be the final word. It was always anticipating the coming of the Savior. So in Jesus, that greater thing than Moses has come. His work is greater than Moses's, And so we have the last verse, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John says Jesus is at the side of the Father and that him and the Father are intimately connected and that if you see the Son, you have seen the Father. Jesus is going to make this, pl- this point explicit throughout the Gospel. I and the Father are one. If you want to see the Father, if you want to know the Father, Jesus says, you must know me. This is a very unpopular take in our pluralistic day, but it is the clear teaching of this passage of the whole Bible. It's the clear teaching of the church for 2,000 years. Of all the things that different denominations have disagreed with over these 2,000 years, this is not one of them until recently. Jesus is the only way. If you want access to God the Father, it only comes through the Son. If you have a problem with that, your problem is not with Pastor Levi. It is with the very words of God found in Scripture. It is with 2,000 years of Christians who have said the same thing. There is only one God, and there is only one true religion, and that centers on the person of Jesus Christ. All religions can no more be true than all formulations of numbers, if added together, can equal four. Only two plus two can equal four. Three plus three cannot. I know I'm being a white supremacist right now. The same is true in religion. John's point screams to us. Jesus is the way we can see God. Moses only saw a fraction of the glory of God and he had to hide from it. But in the coming of the word, we have God with us in fullness. The full revelation of God. And this is why John says, we have seen his glory. He is a witness to that glory. And so that is what we celebrate here at Christmas. This is what we are about to sing. The coming of Christ is meant to reveal to you and to me who God is. We are about to sing these words in our closing song. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. This is Christianity 101. These are the truths we have sung for 2,000 years. 
Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, fully and truly God and fully and truly man. And his incarnation is a new act of creation in which God has come to retake his world. It is a foretaste of his kingdom. When Christ descends again, he will make all things new. And he will do so because he came in the first place 2,000 years ago. The incarnation. Hear me on this. And again, we're going to dive into this more this evening if you're able to join, join us tonight. The incarnation is not just something that happened back then. Jesus is still in the flesh today. He rose again in the flesh. Thomas touched his wounds. In the flesh, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now in the flesh. And he will descend from heaven in the flesh to remake his creation. And at that call, at that trumpet blast, all of us, everyone who's ever lived, will be resurrected in the flesh to face the Word who became flesh. The first advent invariably points us to the second advent, the second coming. We will have full, final, true satisfaction, true eternal life, and God will live with His people forever in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that Jesus Christ came to this world in the flesh. We praise you that he came knowing that he would die in his body, that he would bear our sins. Lord, as we part this morning, may we never grow tired of hearing the extent of your love for your people and that God dwelled among us and will dwell among us again. We ask that you would hasten that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.